Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. Please turn to John chapter 17 as part of the prayer series. I'm going to show my age now. I had an illustration to give you this evening, and I thought it was a fairly recent illustration to give you until I realized the movie that I would be referencing was made nearly 22 years ago, and that movie is the movie Gladiator. So if you were born after May 2000, put your hand up. Were you born after May 2000? How many of you? There's a few of you. So you were born after the movie Gladiator was made. Amazing. Well, it punctuated my life. I was 21 years of age, wandering through my life, not really one, wasn't really sure what a man looked like, but then Russell Crowe <laughs> burst onto the scene. And I'm like, that there, that now is what I need to aim for. Well, he has this part in the movie where he is thrown into the Colosseum to fight again as a gladiator. And um, there is this moment when he is surrounded by other guys who some were ex-soldiers and slaves and so forth who are thrown into the Colosseum with him. And they have to fight. And he doesn't know who's on his right. He doesn't know who's on his left. But because he's like a man's man, he takes charge. He doesn't look around and have a committee meeting to decide who wants to get the vote of being the leader. He takes authority. And he has this saying when the, the opposition kind of troops or the, or the other gladiators are coming into the, to the Colosseum. He has this saying, he goes, as one. As one. And what he's saying through that is that we're only going to get out of here as alive if we fight as one. If we try and fight our own individual battles, we'll be picked off one at a time. But if we recognized our shared experience and our shared adversary and we stick together, we can get through this. And in fact, he does get through that and he comes out the other side and with minimal casualties or a lot less casualties than there would have been, I guess, had they not stuck together. Now, when we read John chapter 17... This is um, one of the prayers of Jesus. We get a number of times in the New Testament where it is mentioned that Jesus took himself aside to places to pray, but we don't get a lot of content of what those prayers were about. But this is one of those parts in Scripture where we do get some substance, some content of the types of things that Jesus was praying. And right before he goes to the cross and he faces execution through crucifixion, he opens up his heart, and I don't know who was around at the time to kind of record this prayer. Maybe he called over Peter or possibly John. It's in John's gospel and said, you need to write this down. I want people to remember exactly what I said in this prayer. And it gets written down what was on Jesus' heart just before he's sort of taken to the cross to be executed. And right in the center of this prayer is a call for unity in the church, a call for the church to be as one, A call for the church not to fight their own individual battles, but to recognize they have a common adversary 
And if they're going to make it through life and through walking out their, their faith in God and do that successfully, then they're going to need to battle shoulder to shoulder. And that means that I have to take an interest in what you're fighting. You have to take an interest in what I'm battling with. So we can share in that struggle together. Give me, let me give you a, another illustration that impacted me recently. Um, we have a neighbor on, on our left, and they have two kids, one six and one is three. So they kind of play okay with our kids. But one of them, the six-year-old, is quite confident for his age, and he's also developed some quite choice vocabulary. Now, I'm not saying just naughty words, but he, he would say things that are quite biting and quite uh, um, unkind, to say the least. And a couple of weeks ago, Isaac was my, our middle son. He was out in the garden, and he comes knocking on, on, on to the window. I was in the kitchen doing something. And he says, Daddy, come outside. And I, said, and I heard this older kid shouting all kinds of things over the fence that I did not expect to be coming out of a six-year-old's mouth. Now, at that time, something rose up within me. I thought, oh, my goodness me. I know that kid is six, but nobody talks to my son in that tone of voice, I can tell you. And so I had to kind of control myself because I wanted to go and have a little polite word with his dad to explain to him the content of his son's language was not appropriate. But my son, Isaac, he, he kind of weathered it okay, but I could see that some of the words had affected him. And because he's my son, of course, I felt a need to intervene. I wanted to step in. I wanted to take action. I wanted to stand in the gap for him. I wanted my son's fight to be part of the struggle that I was going to face alongside him. He didn't want to face that alone. I wanted to face that with him. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, Dave, can you imagine what a church would look like if you and everybody else took the struggle as brothers and sisters in Christ to battle the same way for people who were not your natural relatives, but were part of the family of God? How amazing it would be when we as the church take seriously that call to unity, that seriously, uh, that, uh, a serious command to kind of be as one together. So we're going to read through John chapter 17 now, and I've got three things to draw out uh, from here, because I'm a preacher and we do everything in three points. I'm going to read from verse 15, because it's, it's long enough uh, a chapter for me to not read the whole thing. But we're going to draw out, but most importantly, we're going to look at the, the, the unity call, but we're going to look at some other bits as well. So verse 15 says, I'm not praying that you take them, that's the disciples, out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world, so sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may, be, may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. 
I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory which you have given me because you love me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love that you have loved me with may also be in them and I may be in them. So as I said, right at the center of this prayer is this call to unity. It's something that Jesus takes incredibly seriously. And something as a church, or I'm speaking now of the global church, I don't suppose when we reach Judgment Day, we could say that we've done it incredibly well. There are a lot of denominations. There's been a lot of infighting. There's been a lot of struggles over the years. Some of those we might reflect on in the future and say, well, they were not nice, but, you know, for the sake of a certain particular truth, they may have to some degree been necessary. But nevertheless, Jesus, right at the center of this prayer, he's calling us, despite our differences, despite our different ideas, despite our different ways of going about things, that there would be something of a unity in the church which would attest to the world outside that we are part of Jesus's family, his body, his people, and that would send a strong message and a witness to them. But let me break down this, these, these verses I've, I've, I've shared with you in the actual titles that Jesus gives and the subtext of those titles about how that content for this prayer works its way out. Okay, it'll become apparent as I do this. So verse 15 says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So before Jesus gets on to talk about unity, he prays that there would be a sense of protection over his disciples from the evil one, which we could, I believe, translate to be the devil. Now, the reason I believe that Jesus had to pray for this before he called for unity is because the devil doesn't want unity in the church. So, if Jesus is going to call the church to unity, then he needs to call for a spiritual alertness in the church and a protection over the church because it's the enemy, an unseen enemy, who will constantly be working to undermine the unity of the church. So as Jesus prays for us, the church, his followers, to be protected from the evil one, he's kind of saying to his disciples, there is something going on unseen to you and to me, but he knows, Jesus knew was going on, to try and undermine the unity, the fellowship, the togetherness of the church. And unless I pray into that, that will slowly drag you away and cause division amongst you. So when we see division and disunity in the church, it is often a case of maybe just some natural disagreement, but quite often it will be the work of the enemy trying to bring disruption into the church. Therefore, if we want the unity of the church, it's not simply about educating Christians to be nice to one another. It's about a collective commitment to pray for one another, knowing that the enemy is secretly working behind the scenes to undermine my fellowship to you and your fellowship to me. 
So if you want to live at peace, not just in the relationships of the church, I would say in your marriage, and I would also say in your friendships, then you have to begin the call to unity with a call to prayer. Because prayer is the way that we will achieve unity. Because there will be things under the surface all the time trying to sow discord, doubt in your mind, thoughts in your head. Does this person think about me like this? Or I'm sure they, they meant such and such when they said this to me the other day. That wasn't very kind. Now, I'm not saying that Christians can't say bad stuff to you. They can. I've been on the receiving end of it once or twice in myself. But I recognize behind that We're not just dealing with people, we're dealing with an enemy who wants to undermine the relationship of the body of Christ. Some years ago, I went and took a trip down to Cornwall, and it's pretty nice. Nick likes the holiday in Cornwall. It's like the Saint-Tropez of England. Is it St. Ives you like to go to, isn't it? We went to this nice beach in Cornwall. I was a bit younger then, probably about 15 at the time. And I thought I was quite uh, an able swimmer. But there was this sign up on the beach that said, Be careful of adverse tides. And there was this picture of a stick man kind of looking like he needed help, waving his hand or her hand. It was kind of asexual, I guess. It could have been a he or she waving their hand out of the water. And what it was trying to do was to alert you that there can be something going on in the current of the water that you can't see with your natural eye, but can be pulling you away. Now, because I felt I was a fairly confident swimmer, I didn't take it too seriously. And I had one of those um, kind of plastic surfboard things. I think they're called boogie boards or body boards or... It was something ending in board, and it wasn't quite a full-size surfboard because I wasn't proficient at surfing. It was just one of those things you get from about five ninety-nine off the guy who has a stand at the end of the pier. And I started paddling out and paddling out, but before I knew it, after about 10 minutes, I was trying to paddle back, and I couldn't get back. And I was thinking, well, the water looks fine. It's not a windy day. It was quite sunny. And I had to signal to somebody on the side of the beach that I was in trouble. And somebody, like a kind of a a Cornwallian David Hasselhoff, had to dive into the water and swim out with one of those red floats kind of behind me on a bit of rope. And he had to pull me into shore. Now, I was so delighted I was safe, but I was so ashamed that I needed rescuing. And the thing was, I couldn't even see what I was being rescued from. Because there was nothing there for me to look at that seemed to be a problem. It was invisible to my natural sight. But I had been warned through the sign that there was something there that was a problem. And so often as a church we think, it's okay, I got this. I'm a confident people person. I'm not going to get caught out with disunity. I'm a practiced forgiver. I forgive six or seven times before breakfast. I can go through a week and maybe forgive 40 or 50 people in one go. I've got this. And then suddenly something comes along which we can't see, like an invisible tide. And it catches underneath us. And it's causing you to drift further and further and further to where? Into isolation. Away from safety. Away from the shore. 
And some things in church can happen like that. Maybe a word or a thought or a conversation or a text or an email. I used to work for this pastor who put all of his emails in capitals. All of them. And occasionally he would get a response back, why are you shouting at me? He didn't realize that capitals meant that you were shouting in kind of text speak. And so sometimes we're on the receiving end of a message or an email or a WhatsApp or a, there's some young people in here, or a TikTok or a, what else, Adam, what else? Snapchat. And we're like, what is their problem, man? Like, I am a good person. I did not deserve to be spoken to like that. And then at that point, there's like a little hook under our surfboard that says, drift out to sea. Get away from the crowd. You need to be safe. And in the call to safety is actually a call to isolation. And we find ourselves disunified. And we find ourselves vulnerable to something worse than just the drift. And so by calling the church to pray against the evil one, Jesus is saying, I recognize the adverse currents, the tides, the things that you cannot see, which are going to actively undermine your unity, your togetherness, and your safety as a family. And unless you pray about this, you'll only be fighting things in the natural realm. You'll be resting and relying upon your natural ability to stay in unity with one another when what you need to do is that plus Pray, because prayer is the only thing that will access the unseen realm to do the things that you cannot do in the natural. And so the call to unity begins with a call to prayer. Now the second thing, of course, Jesus does go on to call for unity. In verse 20, he says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. So after this declaration that we need prayer in order to help us stay in unity, there is this call to actually be in unity. Now, the first part, as I said, is prayer, but there is a natural aspect of this unity thing which you and I have some responsibility for. It would be great if we could just pray for the unity of the church and we're all just unified. We just have a few moments with the Lord every now and then and say, Lord, we love that unity thing. It's wonderful. May we have some more. And then we walk into church and then you have absolutely nothing to do. No one to forgive. No one to smile and make peace with even though they rub you up the wrong way. Even though when you feel like the church you're in is 99% sheep and that's the one goat that's managed to get themselves in the door and cause you frustration, there were some some things that we as the church have to do. And I'm going to give you one thing in the natural that I would offer to you is a massive, massive deal when you are dealing with your call to unity one to another. And that is this. Feelings are not facts. It's so profound, I'm going to say it again. Feelings are not facts. What happens is, when we're growing up, we interpret events through how we feel and experience ourselves in those moments. 
So someone says to us and we go, oh, I feel sad now. Therefore, what they said must have been something that was wrong. Or I feel angry. Therefore, what they said must have been wrong. When we experience the moment, we feel a certain way and then we conclude either positively or negatively what the other person's intentions were. That's what we do when we're growing up. But maturity requires of us to understand that if we simply conclude based on how we feel what the other person's intentions are, we will walk in way more disunity than we need to. The reason being that our ability to understand what is really going on is actually quite faulty. Your emotions are actually your brain's guesses when they try and interpret what is actually going on. It's your mind trying to give you an experience as your mind interprets the events that are kind of taking place in front of you. So, for example, if you're walking down a dark alleyway in the middle of the night and you're by yourself and you're not big and burly like Nick, you know, who could probably palm off seven or eight really big guys all by himself. And then you see a shadow move in the background. Your natural inclination is to feel, alarm, what do I do? Do I run or do I fight? Do I stand or do I go? And the, the adrenaline begins to build. Maybe some cortisol is beginning to kind of pop into your system. That stress hormone is helping you to try and manage the moment. And your mind is interpreting the possibilities of what is going on. And your feelings are giving you an indication of what your mind is doing as it interprets. And so you decide to take a stand. I'm not going to back down. I'm moving forward. And then you see the shadow was a cat. And then you're at peace. You're at calm. What your emotions are doing is they're trying to help you interpret the moment. But they themselves are not the interpretation of the moment. They are just part of the body, part of the mind's way at trying to get an idea, get a handle on what's going on, so that when you make your decision of what to do, you've got some evidence for for, for how to handle it. The trouble is that because our reasoning is often faulty or our experience is faulty, then we interpret things incorrectly and the emotions that we feel are the wrong ones and then when we have wrong thoughts and wrong feelings, we come to the wrong conclusions and we do the wrong thing. And when you've got wrong feelings and wrong conclusions and wrong actions, I tell you what the fruit of that is not. It's not unity. It won't be unity in your marriage. It won't be unity in your friendships. It won't be unity in the body of Christ. So while this battle for unity is in part a spiritual one, the natural responsibility upon us is to manage our emotions correctly. And the way you do that is that when you feel something as a result of what someone has messaged you or they have said to you or how they seem to come across in conversation to you, you recognize how you feel, you be honest with your emotion, but then you subject that to critique to make sure that you haven't put one and one together and come up with 92. So... If we're going to move in unity as a church, we not only have to pray for it, we also have to do things that help us to act in accordance with that call to unity. We have to forgive. 
we have to manage our emotions, and we have to conduct ourselves in such a way that we act in a way that will bring about unity, not reinforce disunity. Okay, the third thing is this. comes at verse 25. I'm going to read to verse 26. It doesn't begin with, I pray, but it begins with a, a kind of a call, righteous father, which is a in effect, a prayer. Jesus says this, Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will continue to make it known, so that the love that you have loved me with may also be in them, and I may be in them. This conclusion about this command, this call to unity, ends here with Jesus saying that I want a certain kind of divine love to be in them, and I want to be in them. It's as if Jesus is saying, it's crazy this, isn't it? If people are more like him, there'll be more unity in the church. Madness, isn't it? What's Jesus going on about? Being more like Jesus would bring unity. Of course it would. But the amazing thing about this is Jesus is saying, you can have more of me in you. So if we want to walk in unity as the church, Part of the responsibility upon us is to surrender ourselves to God and say, God, will you help me to get more of you in my life? And how does that come about? It comes about through reading Scripture, having a quiet time, a devotional, prayer, allowing yourself to be regularly filled with the Holy Spirit, The book of Acts, the early church, Peter and the other apostles, they didn't get one filling with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, did some cool stuff, filled with the Holy Spirit again, did some more cool stuff, filled with the Holy Spirit again, and again, they did some more cool stuff. It was as if they're trying to model to us that being filled with the Holy Spirit was a regular necessity to walk in the power of God. In order for us to walk in the unity of, the, the, the God, of God's call to us, the church, we have to be regularly kind of filled up with God in our own lives. Filled up on his word, understanding the teaching, dealing with our own hearts and minds, but being more like Jesus. The more Jesus we have in us, the more Jesus will come out of us. But in order to do that, we have to spend time with him. This comes out of a context of prayer. We also need to be people of prayer. There's no getting around it. it. Prayer takes time. It takes commitment. It's like one of God's love languages is time. Like, come and spend time with me. Don't give me five minutes at the end of the day every day. There are some times you can do that or you have to do that. But at some point, if we're going to develop a quality relationship with Jesus, we have to give him more than the little bit of scraps of time we have at the end of the day. There has to be a sense of priority of us saying in our diary or in the, in the time that we have in the day, saying, God, I'm not going to always give you just those bits in between the other stuff I'm doing. I'm actually going to make you the stuff that I'm doing. Because I need to love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And as we do that and Christ is formed in us, out of us comes the things that bring about unity. Because there comes forgiveness. Jesus is on the cross dying there for a crime he didn't commit. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Therefore, if we have Christ in us, when people are acting in a way that we feel they're crucifying us, The words out of our lips should be, Father, forgive them. 
I don't think you even know what they're doing. I release them and I let them go. Because there's something more important here than how I feel wronged or how I feel at all. There is a bigger principle and practice of unity which is more important than how I'm experiencing this moment or this relationship right now. The covenant that we have as a church is bigger than whether you feel wronged by him, her, or anyone else. We are commanded to be together and to walk shoulder to shoulder as family. I'm going to finish with this quote. It's profound and it came from Nick. Although I did a bit of research and apparently it was a 12th century rabbi who originally came up with it. Do you know that phrase that blood is thicker than water? Typically, and it was until yesterday as well, I was one of those typical people. We think that that phrase is saying that family relationships, blood, uh, are stronger and more important to you than the water uh, in that sort of uh, saying, which is every other relationship. Blood is thicker than water. So the family relationships I have are more important than other relationships. But I was educated and brought into a place of enlightened understanding by Nick. Was it yesterday? No, it was Friday morning. Friday morning. Apparently, the correct saying, the origin of that, was the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. So rather than saying that your blood relatives are actually or should be more important than other friendships, the original saying was to say the relationships of the blood covenant that we have in Jesus are actually more important than the relationships that we have even through the water of the womb. So actually what it's saying is that the Christian relationships we have are more important than any other relationship, whether they're family or not. I didn't do justice to that saying, Nick, but it was, it was the essence of it right there. So Jesus takes unity seriously. You have a part to play in that, part to pray, part to do, part to think about how you emotionally manage moments when you start to feel like that thing in you boiling up when so-and-so says something that you really find obnoxious. When someone's found that button that gets your back up every time and they just press it and they press it and they press it, you're so mature that you go, I'm going to rise above it because there's something bigger here than them and me and that's the unity of the church. And my emotions don't tell me the truth. The word of God tells me the truth and I'll live in accordance with that, not accordance how I feel. Let's pray. Yeah, Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us insight into Jesus' prayer life, into the things that he says and cared about and thought about and wanted to pray over. And Father, we ask for your forgiveness for the times that we have not taken unity as seriously as this prayer instructs us us to take it. I pray you will help us to, to walk out unity this week in our marriages, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our relationships with people that we know well and people we don't know so well, that we won't just live on a, a level of emotion, a level of the flesh, a level of, well, I think and I feel, that we'll live a, on a level of, what does the Word of God say? What would Jesus want me to do? How can Christ be shaped in me? And how can the character of Christ come out of me right now? That as we do those things, that God, you will help us to be a unified church to be a unified people, to be a real family as the body of Christ, 
not just a, a collective of individuals fighting their own battles, but a sense of being together as one. I pray that you will stop any attack the enemy would like to bring against the church this week here at Life Church, that we will build stronger and better relationships, and that we will be unified and together by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarranty.com.